Hello everyone, it's November 10th, 2020. So Rocket Lab has a first stage recovery attempt coming up. We'll get into that. Then it's on to an interview with Mark Lester, CEO of Alaska Aerospace Corporation. If spaceports are to be a common thing, he's the one who will make it happen. Let's find out how and lift off. And we've got a tower. Welcome to episode 284 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So Ben, you promised us with a story yeah. of something gross. Yeah. So, well, I, I've always loved the idea of growing mushrooms. And I, I tried to grow portobellas, um, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years ago. And I just, I didn't have the right environment and I didn't have the right um, amount of attention to actually keep the mushrooms in, in a good, in a good, well-watered healthy state. But it, it appears that I'm actually really good at growing mushrooms because I'm now growing them unintentionally. So so I live in this um hundred year old um folk Victorian house in Pennsylvania and we bought it and it wasn't in the absolute best condition. Um and one of the crazy things is when you have an old house it just leaks. There are just there's drafts everywhere, right? And mm-hmm. so um we found that the plumbing underneath our kitchen sink um, was super drafty because there was a good, I don't know, couple of square inches of hole going straight mm-hmm. through the floorboards and into the basement and not through any insulation or anything. Um, just, you know, a couple square inches worth of hole straight into the stone basement, which is freezing cold. <laughs> um, and so... uh we had had a little bit of a leak because the one of the previous owners had used a, a saddle valve um, to connect up the ice maker in the refrigerator, which is just always a bad idea. And it's against code in most states, including Pennsylvania. Um, and it's against code because it leaks and it was leaking. So I ended up kind of fixing it a little bit, not really, but but just a little bit <laughs> and <laughs> um, and kind of stabilize the situation. Well, it turns out I didn't stabilize it super well because it continued to leak. So I thought because under the sink, we ended up with a bunch of water intrusion. Turns out it's probably actually not the plumbing. It's probably actually the countertop uh, is linking, leaking where it's sealed against the sink basin. In any event, I tore out a bunch. I hadn't rebuilt it. And it turns out it's a really good thing I didn't rebuild it because the countertop is leaking. And has now apparently produced the perfect environment to grow mushrooms out of the floorboards. Oh, wow. And I have no earthly idea how mushroom spores got in there. I don't know what species of mushroom it is, although it looks almost like um, there's a white kind of shelf mushroom that I've seen, like actually edible in the store. And it kind of looks like that. I'm mm-hmm. not going to eat it because I'm not an idiot. Um, <laughs> I don't eat floorboard mushrooms. But yeah, now I have um, big mushrooms, um, maybe uh, four inches in diameter uh, wow. growing <laughs> growing out of the floorboards underneath my sink. That is just wild. It's really crazy. <laughs> it sounds like a Charlie Kelly on It's Always Sunny sort of like thing, like floorboard mushrooms. Yeah, okay, Ew. sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, that's a good yeah. plot right there. That's a good idea. And then like they start selling them and who knows, like they're, I don't know, there's, <laughs> there's a story in there. Probably wind up flavoring bathtub gin with it or something and killing a bunch of people. <laughs> Soon to be in the news, Rocket Lab's uh, attempt at recovery, which hasn't happened yet, but we're going to talk about it because this is very exciting. So this is uh, their attempt to recover first stage, and that's happening, I think, on the 15th or 16th? Yeah, 15th and 16th, depending on where you are on the yeah. <laughs> which side of the uh, international dateline you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I guess we're just going to go down exactly how this is going to play out, hopefully, 
Um, and the name of this mission is Return to Sender. I know that one of the payloads, which is, I guess, just a fun little thing, is a little gnome, like a little guard gnome, and, they're, and they actually named it Gnome Chomsky, which I thought was funny. So, yeah, so Gnome Chomsky's from the game. Well, Gnome Chomsky's the name of a person, but I assume that, or no, is no, that like from the game as well? G-N-O-M-E Chomsky. Like, okay, that's, okay. Uh, it's, 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 I don't know if that counts as a pun. Yeah. No, that's a character in the video game. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I I, I only read it because I'm I'm actually not a Half Life person, as much as I like gaming. But there's 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 a whole bunch of uh, so the payloads, David. Uh, twenty four of them are Space B satellites. You said Space D. Space B, like oh Buzz. Space B. Okay, I was about to say not Space B. Space <laughs> yeah. B. Okay. And then the other ones uh, include uh, payloads for Unseen Labs, which is a French company developing a constellation of satellites for radio frequency tracking. Drag Racer. Yeah, isn't that the one that uh, I thought that was? Oh, yeah, tethers. No wonder you tethers. Like yeah. It. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rides low in the atmosphere, and they're going to do some. Yeah, deorbiting yeah. tether. Cool. Yeah, we're not low in the atmosphere, but yeah, it's a pretty low orbit, I think. And yeah, and and then they're going to test that tether technology to see if they can deorbit the satellite, and they're going to compare. I think it's two satellites, right? They're going to have like a control that doesn't have the tether, and mm. then they have one that does. I think that that's how that particular mission works. I could that be thinking sense. about a different company, but I think that that's the one. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting! Now, like, not even just trying them trying to recover the booster. Now I want to mm-hmm. see Drag Racer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. Um. So I, I'm doing a little bit of of research here. So yeah, I actually do remember Noam Chomsky from Half Life too it's a little it, i mean it is a garden gnome and there's actually a, um an achievement that you can get if you carry the gnome through the whole game um <laughs> and i didn't realize that that it was nicknamed gnome chomsky and so um the payload is actually the the organization attributed to this payload is actually gabe newell <laughs> mm-hmm. the founder of valve <laughs> Um, and so, um, Weta Workshop, the amazing, uh, special effects and monster, uh, and prosthetics workshop, you know, famous for, um, Lord of the Rings. I mean, just um, all these amazing mm. things. They actually, um, <laughs> they, uh, 3D printed a titanium gnome and they're calling it a, a mass simulator, but it's, <laughs> they're, they're calling it an, an homage to innovation and creativity of gamers worldwide. Um, but it's also qualifying, uh, this 3D printing technique. Um, mm. and it's, uh, it's a centimeter and a half tall. And it will stay attached to the kick stage uh, for the entire mission and then uh, burn up on reentry. I'm going to be so disappointed if there isn't a camera that has uh, has the gnome <laughs> in its field of view. I, I didn't realize it was that small, a centimeter and a half. Yeah, it's, I thought it was a little was, tiny thing. I figured it'd be more of a garden gnome size. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> it, that's so fantastic. I love being broadsided by stuff like this where... You have no idea that something so cool is happening. And it's just like, wait, a gnome? What? I, I thought it was a joke that you'd put in there or something. <laughs> so Mark in the chat says, uh, it seems that something that small made out of titanium has a small chance of surviving reentry. Uh, I like that. That'd be something <laughs> it's not, else. It's probably not going to be recognizable. <laughs> okay, sorry. Let me let me let you get back to <laughs> get back to your job. Yeah, no. So right. So those are the the payloads and mass simulator. One stat I thought was interesting, Peter Beck. Right. I mean, he. I love how you know much engaged with the media he is. Like you know, a lot of you know rocket company CEOs and founders are. But you know, he was talking about how eighty uh, percent of the cost of launch vehicles is in the first stage, which I'd never actually seen that number. 
kind of floated around before. Uh, it makes sense why recovery, you know, is just so such an important thing to then aim for. And so uh, what is this, you know, this mission, right? It's delivering those 30 payloads in the mass simulator. But um, as for the how to recover the first stage, what they're going to do is uh, basically after I think something like two and a half minutes, uh, they'll be at a, the first stage will be at 80 kilometers and it'll reorient itself kind of backwards. Uh, you know, so it can re-enter. Uh, and then after it slows down to less than Mach 2, uh, which should be around 14 kilometers, it'll deploy its drogue chute. And then uh, after, uh, you know, a bit of time, by the time it reaches 3 kilometers, it'll deploy the main chute. And then uh, splash down ultimately 400 kilometers uh, off the coast uh, from the uh, launch pad. Then they, you know, they'll have their own recovery vessel out there to scoop it up. It sounds like even if the weather's a little iffy, they'll still go and do it. Uh, it it'd have to be some really bad weather for them to uh, care that much about the downrange uh, recovery at this point. But um, just uh, I thought it was nice because you know this is uh, an all-up test uh, from their perspective when it comes to uh, the recovery. Right? They've been testing different components uh, for you know. Uh, like a year and a half now, um, almost two years actually, yeah. coming on two years. And right, and Ben, you talked about how uh, Apollo Four, how they uh, have that all-up mode of testing uh, last week is such a, you know, it's a cool way to do things. And so, you know, the first stage, you know, uh, it's gonna, it's got, it's equipped with guidance and navigation hardware. It's got its reaction control system, uh, S-band telemetry, and an onboard flight computer. Uh, just you know, all these things to help it, you know, uh, be able to guide at the specific trajectory so you know it'll survive to the point where it can deploy stroke mm -hmm. and um those different you know uh components that have been tested include uh mid-air recovery of you know they they did a drop test of a dummy rocket stage but they've scooped it up with a helicopter uh that was really exciting really really good video um well produced <laughs> when they did that and you know dropped it down on that nice beautiful grassy new zealand field they also did uh successful drogue and main parachute deployment tests in uh, subsequent mock stage exercises that were uh, also drops. And so I, I didn't actually know about those. Um, so that was that was surprising. And then something else I didn't realize uh, I was going to ask you all, you know, when I was when I came across this, but that they guided two first stages already uh, in December 2019 and January 2020. Uh, did you know that? They definitely tested out some of, you know, whatever it was because they didn't specify that they, you know, had on board to, you know, control the mm -hmm. descent. Because I think I remember us talking about it and we weren't sure what that meant because they said something like non, I don't know, I don't remember the word. Um, it was just kind of worded kind of funny and uh, mm. and we didn't know. But I guess it's some kind of a cold gas thrusters or something like that. And that's what they're doing to help, you know, control the angle of reentry and all that. And actually, I... I was wondering because this is a question that, that I'll ask you then because um, mm. I might have forgotten, but they actually have a heat shield on this thing, and, and so it has to be in the right the right orientation. But what is the nature of that heat shield? Because I don't recall, and I don't think I've ever seen anything. And maybe it's just not visible. It might be a coating of some kind of a special paint or something. Because I imagine those reentry temperatures can't be too super high. But yeah, that's so that's probably so it has a heat shield, but I don't recall yeah, like, anything I, about that. You're right about that. That you know, they talk about the heat shield a lot. And um and actually I realized we still haven't actually said so this is an electron rocket, right? Just you know, Oh yeah. I realize you know listeners of the show, you know, I'm sure all remember that, but it just seems weird to do the whole <laughs> the whole space news and not even mention that, you know, the name of the rocket. Right. But anyway, um I I, I don't know. I'm you know, I'm trying to Google some, you know, pictures of it, but yeah, I, it it I mean you're 
everything you just said is is right. There is a heat shield, and that's why you know that reorientation is super important. But as for what it looks like, you know exactly where it's going to fit in. I just that's not clear. Mm -hmm. My guess is that it is uh, a paint on one side mm -hmm. of the of mm -hmm. the body, um, not like you know a full on Pika X conical. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. or domed heat shield um, that you'd use in a biconic sort mm. of sense. Yeah, it's kind of what I'm thinking. Is it, It's just a coating of something that they have to put on there, which I guess, I suppose that adds enough weight that they only put it on one side because if not, why not put it on the whole thing? I mean, it. it, it I don't think that's that big of a deal. I, I don't think it's about um, controlling the roll vector as much as it is controlling pitch and yaw. Because if you're trying to, if you're trying to use the side of your booster um, as a decelerator, you really don't want to be flying in engines first because then mm -hmm. all of the shock heating is applied to the engines. But if you can pitch up to some degree um, and, and who knows how much of a degree that is, um, you can distribute that shock heating over the entire vehicle. And so, yeah, it, you know, it, it may be that they really care about the roll angle because they have only applied it to half of the skin, but I don't think that that's necessarily something that we can uh, infer from what we know it might also have to do with the parachute deployment mechanism like you know how that comes out and how that works but there might be other aspects of the, of the vehicle that actually determine how it has to be positioned and so the paint just goes on kind of like as an afterthought like well you know like it has to face this direction so let's just put the paint on that half of the vehicle yeah. because yeah. it you know it can't easily, be the other way easily could be the case yeah so anyway but yeah i was just wondering what what it meant by heat shield so yeah i mean it almost certainly has to be some kind of a paint or not paint i guess that's not the right word but something that you would paint on i suppose or that you would apply we we, we don't know and like yeah. i really wish that we could have twisted beck's arm when we had him on the show a month or two ago mm -hmm. but i mm -hmm. we all we all knew that that was not gonna uh not gonna happen <laughs> I, so I was just so afraid I, I was afraid to, to most of the time i'm willing to you know just hammer people with with dumb questions that i know they're not gonna be able to answer but like well, this is peter beck i'm gonna be real nice <laughs> <laughs> hey hey rocket lab we know you're listening. Um, maybe, maybe uh, be really nice and throw us a bone. Cause like, I would love to know what this means. Like, I, I would love to know how, how, how they're approaching this. So this test that they're doing, they're just going to bring this down into the ocean. They're not, they're not going to capture it with a helicopter. And one of the reasons is because obviously they don't know what condition the first stage will be in. And so that might actually be dangerous. And so they said that it has to be passivated. And uh, that basically comes down to any kinds of, you know, fuel on board or unpressurized canisters of whatever I'm guessing. So they just want to be on the safe side. And so they're going to recover it from the ocean, take a look at it. And if it looks like you can safely capture it from the air, then, you know, they'll do that next time. Um, so that's like the one thing that, that they're not going to do. Like it's not a full-on recovery just yet because they're kind of like leaving out that last step. Um, but, you know, pretty close. So Beck said that they'll probably do a few more splashdowns actually before they recover it. But that's not many. So I'm probably looking at, I don't know, within a year. Yeah, they got a pretty high launch cadence so and i just can't wait to see a rocket stage recovered with a helicopter that's something that, <laughs> like just the sight of that that's even cooler to me at the moment than watching it touch down in a falcon 9 fashion let's do four short and sweets 
And what is our first one, Ben? All right. Spacebit doesn't hate wheels, but they do love sharing data. The UK rover company Spacebit is best known for Asagumo, its four-legged swarm rover concept. An initial single rover is scheduled to fly on Astrobotics Peregrine Lander next July, but last month they won a second CLIPS contract to fly a new wheeled rover on Intuitive Machines' Nova Sea Lander next October. The company has now invited university researchers to sign up to receive a, quote, certain degree of granularity of the data returned by this wheeled rover once their chief scientist has had access to the full data set. While Asagumo is ultimately intended to be deployed from a wheeled mothership to explore the lunar subsurface via lava tubes, this as yet unnamed two-wheeled rover's abilities may prove out to be a better locomotion strategy. Spacebit is apparently interested in making that determination before making the jump to full-scale swarm missions. Next up, Galactic Energy reaches orbit. Galactic Energy, one of four private Chinese launch companies to attempt an orbital launch, successfully lofted a Tianqi satellite into sun-synchronous orbit. This makes it only the second private firm in China to achieve orbit. The launch vehicle named Series 1 is 19 meters long and 1.4 meters in diameter with four solid propellant stages. It can deliver a maximum of 350 kilograms to LEO. However, Galactic Energy plans to shift a more complex liquid propellant launcher called Palace 1 by 2022. This vehicle will be capable of delivering four metric tons to LEO. Virgin Galactic enters final testing phase before operations. Virgin Galactic executives recently announced the final series of test flights of Spaceship 2, with the company aiming to enter commercial operations in 2021. Scheduled to fly in the coming weeks, this will be the first time the suborbital vehicle has flown under rocket power since February 2019. The flight will test the new cabin interior design developed for future commercial flights, as well as carry four payload racks for research programs. If successful, a second test flight is scheduled for the first quarter of 2021 and will carry four employees along with the two pilots. And fourthly, the curse of Scrubtober ends. GPS-3 Flight 4 has finally got off the ground on the 5th, but Sentinel-6's launch date has slipped from the 10th of November to the 21st of November to allow for two engine replacements. Last week, we discussed the possibility that either or both of these missions might need to fly before NASA was ready to allow Crew-1 to launch. Now, it's clear that just one launch was good enough, and Crew-1 has a relatively solid planned launch date of November 14th. Welcome to the interview segment. Today we have with us Mark Lester. He's the president and CEO of the Alaska Aerospace Corporation. Uh, I'm sorry, it, does it does it matter if it's AAC or just the Alaska Aerospace? Either will work. Okay. <laughs> All right, great. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm assuming that everybody listening to this is going to know that Alaska Aerospace is uh, most notably connected to the Pacific Spaceport Complex Alaska, um, which is where a lot of um, interesting new launches are starting to happen. It's kind of this exciting, um, like mini Vandenberg uh, that's kind of up and out of the way mm. um, that gets a little bit of discussion, but but not a whole heck of a lot. So um, I wanted to thank Chris Hoffman, um, who listens to the show for putting us together um, and giving us a chance to talk to you, Mark. Uh, welcome. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me this morning. Okay. So could you just start out by giving us sort of an overview of what AAC does and, and, and why you're 
public as opposed to private and, and how this works? Sure. So Alaska Aerospace was stood up in the early 90s by the state of Alaska uh, under state statute to diversify the economy uh, into aerospace. And we've been largely doing that around the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska, which is a spaceport on Kodiak Island. Uh, but our interests extend beyond there. Uh, we support a number of aerospace initiatives across the state. We work with the University of Alaska in their Poker Flat Research Range, which is up by, by Fairbanks and suborbital launches. We led the bid for Anchorage to bid on the headquarters U.S. Space Command. So we'll see in next year if, the, if that comes to fruition, a little bit of a long shot, but we're excited to uh, throw our hat in the ring for that. So, so the spaceport, which is, as you mentioned, we're most notably known for, has been launching since 1998. So our first launch, uh, largely government launches and then recently commercial launches as the new space commercial industry has been uh, growing. We've been expanding our customer base uh, with now both solid and, and liquid field vehicles. So we are a FAA licensed commercial spaceport, uh, orbital, suborbital capability, uh, and what's interesting is a couple of notable things about Kodiak. One is we're not co-located on a federal range. So every other launch, vertical launch range that goes to orbit is co-located uh, with a federal range. So Cape Canaveral and NASA and, and Space Force, Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, Wallops Island is where Mars is with uh, NASA. And so we're the fourth location, uh, similar orbit access to Vandenberg, Although our launch van is, is the largest in the U.S., so we have a very broad capability to going into polar orbits uh, and high inclination hmm. orbits. Yeah, so you mentioned Poker Flat, and you also are working with Spaceport Camden. What exactly, uh, I guess I don't understand enough about the relationship to ask a good question, but what, what's your relationship to the university as well as Cam, you know, Camden County in Georgia? You're, you're working to get them or helping them navigate the FAA licensing maze, I guess? Yeah, so the relationship with the other spaceports is a little bit about helping extend our knowledge to other places and keeping the industry moving forward and meeting the new needs, as well as uh, business needs. So for the past five years, Alaska Aerospace has not received any state or federal funding for operations. And that's unique uh, in that we run the business as a business and not, you know, my salary, everyone's salary, paying for the rent, paying for electricity, uh, all of those good things we do from receipts. So the key is to keep our staff busy and utilized in supporting customers and the number of launches we're doing here in Kodiak um, isn't to that level yet where um, we're busy all the time. So by helping other spaceports stand up and do operations, that helps keep us um, billable as well as then keeping us sharp on our skills. So uh, from 2017 to 2019, we actually sent um, some telemetry and flight safety antennas down to New Zealand to support Rocket Lab on their first 10 launches of their Electron rocket. 
It was a great experience for us. They got to leverage our technology and know-how on tracking rockets in flight termination if needed. Uh, and while they are building their autonomous flight termination system and getting that certified by the FAA, we were able to return those antennas back, refurbish them. And when Spaceport Camden, for example, gets their license, we plan to deploy those antennas down to Camden. Um, so then they don't have to necessarily invest in what's a pretty expensive hardware, and then we get to uh, leverage our expertise. Similarly with Poker Flat, um, there is a, a relationship between us and the university by state statute. The university president is a board member as well as the Geophysics uh, Institute director is a board member. Uh, so we're actually pursuing for Poker Flat a commercial FAA license. And then the workforce between Kodiak and Poker Flat is expected to kind of float back and forth to help each other uh, on staffing as need be. And so what we're seeing for Alaska Aerospace is, is a fair amount of demand for what our experience has developed over the past 20 years in exporting that to new spaceports as they come online. That's, that's really cool. One of, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, you know, what, what do you do all day, basically? Um, and, you know, your, your launch manifest, you've got a couple of big gaps. Um, uh, 2002 to 2004, you didn't have any launches. Uh, 2014 to 2017, you didn't have any launches. And one of my questions was, well, you know, what, what exactly exactly are you keeping yourself busy with during these times? And that's a fantastic example of, of a way to, I guess, be efficient, right? Like it's so inefficient to have people doing nothing. That's like infinite inefficiency. Um, mm -hmm. did, did you have any other examples of, um, of what you guys are able to do um, even when you're not actively supporting a launch? Yeah, I think this is where I really like how we're set up as a, a business versus a government organization. We're, we're owned by the state, I'm a state employee. Uh, my background is is uh, served in the Air Force, but then largely in private industry and and, uh, and business perspective. And, and that's what attracted me to come to Alaska, uh, the take on this challenge is say, how do we figure out the spaceport side of commercial space travel, and as well as supporting government national security missions in a more efficient, effective manner to really accelerate this industry forward. Um, I think there's been a lot of great progress on the rocket side, the launch vehicle side, uh, and I wanted to bring then the spaceport side to this, just like we see with the airports. So airports serve as great economic hubs, uh, typically owned by government, either uh, local or, or state government. Uh, but operate at least as a uh, neutral, uh, revenue neutral type of perspective. Um, mm. But don't, don't take taxpayer dollars, if you will, typically to, to operate. Um, so that's one thing that attracted me here. So what um, we've been able to do in that, they, you mentioned in 2014 uh, to 2017, we didn't have any launches because in 2014, we had a flight anomaly that caused $35 million worth of damage to our launch tower, uh, what we call the SCAT, which is a, um, a transportable building over launch pad two and then our integration facility. And we were without any launches. So my predecessor had to um, let go a number of staff. And then when we started coming back to launch operations, we started bringing in consultants from the lower 48. And, and that worked uh, for a while as we we're at a very low ops tempo, but as we're seeing a higher ops tempo now, um, still not great ops tempo, but we're about five launch campaigns a year now. Uh, we've transferred that back to Alaskans. Um, and so when I came on board about two years ago, 70% of our staff running a launch were coming up 
up from the lower 48 and then they would go home after the launch. And that creates a, a bubble of economic activity, but not a sustained economic activity. And now about 90 to 95% of our staff for our launch is here in Alaska. 75% uh, of them live on Kodiak. Uh, and so on launch day, they pivot in their chairs and, and, and do the launch. And day in and day out, they're doing something else. So for example, our uh, logistics lead and procurement lead on island on launch day, she's our EMT and, and leads emergency services. Mm. Uh, mm. Our custodian day in and day out on launch day, she launches weather balloons and does high altitude weather data analysis for us. Uh, our procurement specialist here in Anchorage, who actually is a dairy farmer by, by trade and by education, mm -hmm. she's learned how to do operations director work. And so she'll fly down to Kodiak and be on the launch floor, talking to the FAA, talking to our boundary boats, providing safety and coordinating with the launch team to ensure we have a, a clear and safe range. So it's really exciting to see the staff be able to do a day, day in and day out job. And then when it comes to a launch, pivot, take on a launch job, it, it reduces costs for our customers because everyone's right here in Alaska. It enables the workforce to get engaged in some really cool things about launching rockets. Uh, can't get excited about that. I, I don't know what you can't get excited <laughs> about. Um, and, and then it's it's really an like efficient model then to uh, keep our costs down. So that downtime uh, is minimized and we'll work time off around those those breaks, um, but sometimes things get pretty busy. You can go right from now from one operation and prepping for a launch right to the next one, which is which is fun. It kind of sounds like you've got a, a little bit of an organization that, that sounds like what Mars might end up looking like, where, you know, you still have to get the same work done and you're not going to segregate out, you know, all, all these different jobs to, to different people. A lot of people are going to have to put on different hats and that it's kind of exciting to hear you guys already doing that here on Earth. That's a good good example. I didn't think about it that way. Well, yeah, now now uh, next time you're doing a job that doesn't quite match your job title, you can go, ah, it's just like, just like Mars. Just like Mars. <laughs> Someday I hope to experience that, but we'll see. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so you guys are way up on a little island, or at least I assume it's small. That's way up there in Alaska. So I'm wondering what challenges do you have, like operating from there, because it doesn't seem like the kind of place that you would typically put a spaceport. Um, especially since you know, obviously, it's like as you said, you can only do certain kinds of launches. You can't go into any kind of you know, like you can't do equatorial orbits, obviously. But um, what challenges do you have? Because it seems like a very like remote location and that things would, I don't know, it just seems like stuff is expensive up there because I think of it as like putting a space center on like Hawaii or something, you know, because it's just so remote that everything costs more and it's just more difficult logistically. Yes, yeah, so I think there's a lot of myths about Alaska uh, that scare people versus the reality, to, to be honest, and from my experience here. Uh, yeah, granted, it, it, you have to be more deliberate, let's say, in your logistics coming here. Um, going over the Vandenberg, especially if you're a California-based uh, company, easy, right? Kind of drive down the road and, and, you're, and you're there. Although there's a, a lot of other constraints being on a on a military base, right? Um, and so the, the logistics here at Kodiak, um, you have to be a little more deliberate. But I would say all in all, it is actually a pretty straightforward place to work from. Uh, Kodiak is the second largest island in the U.S. behind the big island of Hawaii. We're on 3,700 acres of public land at Narrow Cape. Uh, we have six launch pads. So the complex is pretty robust uh, in capability, kind of a, a mini version, if you will, of Vandenberg or, or the Cape. We don't have 200-foot rockets. We're dealing with, call it 100-foot and less size rockets, small class launch uh, here. But 
the port is ice-free in deep water, uh, so ice-free year-round. We launch year-round. The, the temperatures at Kodiak are, are modest. It, it's chilly, especially if you're coming up from LA. It, it be chilly. It's uh, mm -hmm. the lows get into the 20s in the winter. Highs are only in the 60s in the summer, on average. You know, we do get some snow in the winter. Last winter we had a kind of record snowfall um, throughout the winter, which made doing the DARPA launch challenge a little bit more challenging. But it, it worked out great. There was a lot of great launch days still there to be had. Um, you know, Kodiak isn't like Nome uh, where, or, or Fairbanks. Fairbanks gets to be minus 40 regularly, a lot of snow. Uh, so it's pretty mo uh, moderate temperature-wise, pretty moderate um, in conditions. We also have fiber optics that go right from the spaceport two different directions. So a lot of our customers, both government and commercial, will only bring a smaller team up to Kodiak to get the rocket ready. And then their command and control and engineers are working remotely. And with the fiber optics, you can you know, be, be really any place in the world and be able to tie into that. So a lot of capability there. The airport is fairly um, large for you consider a remote island. It's co-located with the Coast Guard base, which is the largest Coast Guard base in the U.S., so you can bring in uh, C-130s and C-5s, and uh, there's 737 daily, 737 uh, passenger arrivals every day. There is two shipping vessels that come in uh, a week, each week. Uh, so a lot of customers will ship up their rocket in standard 40-foot containers, uh, which works out great. So it it is there's a lot more capability i think a lot of people uh, think about for quote alaska and then remote alaska and so i really like to invite people to come up uh, see the site understand better the logistics uh, and just really think through it because bringing something up to seattle put it on a on a ship gets here to uh, alaska in, a, in about a week's time uh, so it's it's pretty straightforward. I guess a counterpoint to that question would be what are what are some of the the advantages of operating from somewhere like Kodiak? Yeah, great question. So there's the advantages operating from Kodiak is you have a lot of different options. Uh, our launch fan goes from 110 degrees azimuth to 220, so you can go into uh, inclined orbit from about 60 degrees to 110. So lots of retrograde orbits there. Uh, since the population density is low, we can do more test operations. The big North Pacific uh, in that open area allows us to do test operations and suborbital launches. So we see that we can do a lot more complex things out of Alaska than what you can do out of many other ranges. Um, also, because we have such a long, large launch fan, when we start getting into a world where it's point-to-point -point type of access, uh, without any changes to how we're doing business, especially for, let's say, cargo, we can then launch out of Kodiak and be really any place in the world uh, through a polar orbit in 90 minutes or less, which is kind of exciting. I think it opens up a lot of options for the future. Future. Mark, I was wondering, so there are a lot of ranges out there and spaceports, but when it comes to like, you know, big active ones that are doing orbital launches, I mean, that's pretty few and far between. And it's really impressive that, you know, Pacific Space Port Complex Alaska, you know, what did it take to, you know, bring it from just an island, you know, or I shouldn't say just an island, right? But what did it take to, you know, make it such a, a big successful spaceport? Back in the early 90s, it took some vision and some forth, uh, forethought on this. And uh, Senator Ted Stevens, who was a longtime senator here in Alaska, really led the charge to see that for 
the military as well as our uh, commerce and civil access to space, that, that we needed more than just Vandenberg and the Cape to carry that load. I mean, they've done tremendous work uh, for several decades, but man on the moon, right? I mean, the accolades go on and on without, without a doubt. But having resiliency, being able to support a broader set of customers, he saw that having more launch sites would do that. And they actually did a search across Alaska for, for different launch locations and, and ended up down at the narrow cape on Kodiak as a, as a great place because of its southern access to the, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and so there, there was a lot of de deliberate thinking and how do you complement Vandenberg. Uh, we certainly don't you know, view ourselves as directly competing with Vandenberg. I think we both have a, a, some great things we can do uh, together in supporting customers. And as we're starting to see the buildup of all these commercial customers and commercial rocket companies, right, just keep on building more rockets. And uh, you, you don't want to have the, the get all log jammed, right? You don't want to have them sitting on, on the sidelines waiting for your next slot to launch. So I, I think Kodiak and Vandenberg and probably re really need a few more. Um, as we build this out, we, we don't want to hamper civil access, commercial access to, to space and having a few more vertical launch sites in particular, I think will really help us grow this out. So you know, we've been doing a lot of military launches, about one a year, uh, launching Minotaur 4s, which are uh, old ICBMs, access ICBM boosters, which are, and that was another thing in the early 90s, the thought is we can take these excess ICBM boosters and launch commercial uh, payloads. And Congress decided you know, that would not be smart to flood the market with essentially taxpayer paid uh, rockets and let the new space companies come forward. And I think that was a really smart decision. We still use the Minotaur 4s in, in that class to launch some government payloads, but I don't think you would see companies like Astra, SpaceX, and Firefly, and ABL, and Relativity, and all, all these coming forward yeah. if if we had flooded the market with ICBMs, uh, excess mm -hmm. ICBM boosters, I should say. So um, I think that's exciting. And so I think we're, we're really at the same kind of reflection point here with Spaceports of encouraging more locations to build out a network of spaceports. And that network um, creates some commonalities and creates options. And, and that's another reason why we work with other spaceports like Spaceport Camden, Mars, we collaborate with, um, and even some overseas sites we're collaborating with too. If we come up with some standards of operations and then launch vehicle companies can basically roll their rocket up, launch it and go, just like we experienced with airports, that'll help bring the cost down, make things efficient uh, and give us a lot Lot of resilient op opportunities and options. It's really cool. So you had mentioned standardizing some things like exactly what kinds of things are you talking about? Because that's a very interesting idea that you could just, you know, have a standard spaceport. Um, but um, I'm just wondering what that looks like. Yeah, so some things are starting to get standardized or have been through uh, the Range Commanders Council, RCC, and you see things like RCC 319 being touted by the FAA as a one option to standardize around flight termination, for example. And so you see some standards around, around frequencies, if you will on that. But but I'm thinking more around procedures of how you do it. So even services, um, just understanding what type of basic services you would expect to get from a spaceport, like weather services or um, clearing the range or uh, or uh, safety and emergency services. I, I think these are pretty consistent across spaceports, but uh, undefined really on how they're, they're operated. Some of these things are spaceports provide to the launch vehicle operator 
as a service under their license activity. So we're all very accustomed to going to airports and knowing that there, there's a tower there and that you can call a phone number, or dial up on a frequency, the, the weather report and, and everything. And we're not quite there yet on spaceports. We're, we're starting down that, that road. Um, I think that is those type of services and understand what you can expect, that'd be great. Uh, and then you start to look at the interfaces, the, the mechanical interfaces between what's at a launch pad and then the launch vehicle itself. And you start seeing companies like the launch company um, here in, in Anchorage, actually, Ben Kelly's company here, starting to develop standardized ground system interfaces, ground system uh, support equipment to then create that as kind of plug and play, where uh, if you knew what the interfaces would look like, uh, you just roll roll up to the pad, plug, it, plug in those connectors and off you go. Um, so it's exciting to see companies like that starting to come forward and, and build out this ecosystem uh, and organization like AEC being a state organization really fits well because I'm not here to make AEC do that all and create a huge profit for AEC. I want to create an economic hub here in Alaska and support other places that where we can develop this industry and have that grow in a free market type of sense. So, so you'd mentioned um, how you've been able to incorporate lessons learned from airport operations. Is it is that mostly um, what you were talking about, or, or um, are there other examples of that? Because I, I think that's a really interesting connection to make when we're, you know, going from uh, airports all over the world to, you know, potentially spaceports. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of things there. Spaceports can learn from airports. Uh, they've got, airports have decades of experience for us to leverage. When I look at all the infrastructure out of the spaceport, it's very similar to infrastructure we have at airports, right? There's, there's fuel and propellants. There's lots of concrete that needs to be and, and, mm -hmm. and below ground infrastructure that needs to be maintained and cared for and, and developed. Uh, we have a, now a master plan here at the Kodiak Spaceport of understanding how we're going to grow, just like airports have master plans. In fact, we hired as our latest spaceport manager uh, was the former airport manager for the Aleutian Chains in Kodiak for a number mm -hmm. of years, uh, retired out of that position. And, and I said, look, I, I need to leverage your expertise in how you run an airport in to how we can run a, a spaceport. So I, I think sometimes space folks like to, we like to think that we're special and uh, we got to do <laughs> things differently. Um, but uh, I found that that really isn't the case. There's a, there's a few things, right, we got to be mindful of. But even dealing with the FAA, right, if you're accustomed to working with the FAA on the air side, uh, just, you know, flip a few more chapters back to the 400 series and now you're into mm -hmm. um, space transportation and you can understand and what they're concerned about with public safety, just, just like an airport with, with public safety as well. So um, we found that to be efficient, the, the safety and OSHA and, and other requirements, uh, regulatory requirements can be transferred over and, and understood. And then what it does it take to keep the spaceport working? And it doesn't take a lot of aerospace engineers. There's not a lot of rocket science, if you will, at the spaceport. It takes a lot of folks maintaining the systems, moving, moving dirt around, um, keeping snow open, right? So where there's runways at an airport and taxiways, we, we have launch pads. And so understanding how to keep those efficient and operational, pretty much one and the same. Um, are, are there any similarities between range operations supporting a launch and air traffic control? I mean, it's kind of kind of the same quadrant of operations, but they seem pretty, pretty different. But I wonder if there might be some surprising similarities there. 
Right now, it's pretty segmented, segmented I would say. Uh, we, at the, at the range, our main purpose at the range is to keep all the public safe. So we're clearing out the airways, the waterways, and the land. And in order to do the airways and the waterways, we coordinate with the FAA and Coast Guard. So 30 days before a launch, we negotiate with the FAA and Coast Guard what dates and times our launch window uh, we want to use. And they'll look at air traffic, uh, both in a big sense, if you will, like Trans-Pacific flights that, that cut across the North Pacific. And then we'll also look at the local flights of air taxis that need to get up and down the island uh, to some of the more remote villages and coordinate a time that works well for our customer as well as then with all this air traffic and kind of segment that out. And really segmenting the airspace right now is where we're at. Uh, we have initiated a partnership with the FAA. Actually, we're the first spaceport to do so on uh, testing something called SDI, Space Data Integrator. This was a system that was developed by Blue Origin and SpaceX. Um, and it looks like it has a lot of promise in that we send the telemetry data to the FAA National uh, Command and Control Center in Warrington, Virginia, uh, and we give them the countdown uh, as well. So they know where the rocket is. And the intent is then they can track it on their screens and see it lift off and go into space. And the plan in the future then is to use that data to then more dynamically control the airspace. So if you're, if you're monitoring where the rocket is and you know it's sitting on the ground, you know it's still 30 minutes away, then, then flow the air traffic, right? Uh, and then once you see, okay, we're getting into a terminal count, we clear out the air traffic, let it launch, 10 minutes it's gone, and keep that air traffic flowing. We're not there yet as a nation in, in, in the national airspace, but we're starting to get there. And tools like SDI and uh, other initiatives that the FAA has uh, joined with the space side of the business, uh, really starting to move that forward. And, and that's going to really help us go from onesie twosie number of launches to tens of launches to gosh you know be great to have launch you know almost every day uh, i'd see that way way out <laughs> but uh, you know for kodiak we're looking to have 36 launches hopefully in the next call it five years um having two or three commercial customers launching once a month and then adding in a handful of government launches so that'll be pretty exciting to do call it uh you know, even one launch a week, uh, that would that'd be a tremendous pace. So th this is deep into speculation or speculative territory. Uh, but do, do you really see that sort of that sort of interplay between air traffic and space traffic? Um, just because, you know, when you're launching a rocket, you have such narrow um, launch window constraints. Um, do you see the industry getting to a point where we can support uh, larger plane changes or um, tolerate different uh, different orbit insertion uh, characteristics? Or, or is that something that is over the horizon in terms of the way that we think about putting vehicles into space today? Yeah, I agree. I think the physics of us putting vehicles into space today is not going to change significantly. Right. We, we have some launch vehicles that have a fair amount of energy uh, to use on plane changes, like, like launching polar out of, out of the Cape, right, it is one of those. But I think for the most part, you're not going to see a lot of that. I, I think it's going to be integrating data together, location of the launch vehicle vis-a-vis -vis location of aircraft. Uh, mm. and be able to then better manage those that separation. Right now, we just block it out in big chunks of airspace and big chunks of time, which can be burdensome uh, on, on air traffic. And I get it, uh, especially if you're taking a big long haul flight 
uh, across the ocean, or, or even if you're an air taxi, more local, where you think you have some more dynamic ability, but people still counting on that uh, traffic. So the other piece I think that's going to change on the launch vehicle side is reliability. So when reliability becomes a higher standard, um, or the standard's still high, but it, it, we achieve a higher level of reliability, then we can hmm. narrow in the safety margins. Uh, and still keep the public safe, but know that we're keeping them safe with some uh, smaller safety hazard zones. But that will then open up more airspace for everyone too. So I noticed from your website that you have something called the Responsive and Agile Space Launch Innovation Center. Um, and I'm guessing that this might be one of those things that your organization is occupied with when you have some downtime, since you seem to have some of that. So uh, what is that exactly? Because it sounds very, very different and not something that I would expect from a you know rocket launch center, to be honest. Yeah, so we stood up the Razzle Innovation Center, uh, Responsive and Agile Launch as, as a way with, with the University of Alaska as a way to uh, capture lessons learned on how to launch quickly and how to be dynamic and fluid as we see then both the military wanting to have more responsive launch and then on the commercial side having more responsive launch. We think we've got a lot of unique experience here at Kodiak in Alaska of, of how you do that. In fact, earlier this year, we supported the DARPA Launch Challenge, which was a prize-based challenge that Astra was the, the finalist in to launch quickly, move sites, and then launch quickly again, and, and kind of really shifting the paradigm from having years to plan for a launch to then really just days, having a month to plan for a launch. And then if uh, you're successful, then say, okay, do that again uh, from a different launch site. And much of a challenge as it was, I think, for the launch vehicle operators, because there was only one finalist on there, I think it was a challenge also for spaceports. We were the only spaceport that made it to the finish line and had that ability, both in procedures and um, our activities, having a flexibility to do that. And we need more than just one launch site that can do that, right? So uh, we, we stood up the Innovation Center uh, to start to explore those options, looking at things like standardization of how do you actually implement that, uh, looking at deployable spaceport elements. Uh, that was one of our first activities that we undertook um, in looking at, okay, we can deploy out antennas. What if we deployed out command and control? What if we had a deployable weather uh, station that we could also do? So I, I think looking at those types of options and seeing how we can create more responsive capability to access space will be, especially in the near term, as the industry is building up and we're starting to see a network of spaceports build up, will be very helpful to move us forward quicker than, than otherwise. So, Mark, one of the things that I really love about when we're fortunate enough to get to, you know, interview people like yourself um, is to get really down to kind of details, like in pragmatic, in a pragmatic sense, you know what I mean? And so this question is just kind of shifting gears a bit, but uh, I'm just curious, like, what does it take for a customer to launch with you? You know what I mean? Like, like what, what, you know, how does that happen? You know what I mean? Like, what do you require of your customers? What What are the steps? How long does it take? I don't know, like <laughs> things like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, the main thing is having an FAA license, uh, which is now shifting over to Part 450. But uh, Part 415, 417 is the main key for our commercial customers on the government side and the government agency will certify and be basically equivalent to that FAA license. Uh, so the, the coming, coming with, with that in hand is key. 
Um, when it comes to planning, uh, we start with really just a program introduction. And we follow, if you're familiar on the government side, they have something called UDS, Universal Document System. It's, it's a really good way to document requirements and what each side needs. And so, uh, but it can be a bit onerous. Uh, if you're familiar with that document, it sits about three inches thick. Um, very comprehensive, works very well, but as you would expect, kind of very oriented towards big federal government um, process uh, and a big standing army to, to manage it. Um, and so we can certainly scale up to that. And, and a number of our government customers tend to want that type of rigor and we, we do that, but we tend to kind of take a much more streamlined version of that with the commercial side. So it starts with a program introduction, tends to be a briefing back and forth of, hey, here's what my rocket looks like. Here's what my Conops is. We'll brief them on our different launch site options of some flat pads, some gravel pads, and up to the, the to the tower um, as well, and say, okay, look, is this gonna fit? Is this not gonna fit? Uh, what modifications may need to be made? Uh, and then start to get into more of the requirements set of the process of what, what do they need from us? Do they need some cranes? Do they Are they gonna bring their own tell and, and transport it and, and erect it and have their own stool? Um, do they need liquid oxygen support or propellant support? Uh, how many weather balloons so you get down into the details uh, of it, but I would say most people come to the table and say, well, what can you do for, for me? Um, and, and since we do have a lot of options here, we, we tend to have more options than, than they need, which is fine because the way we work with our customers is you're being a multi-user spaceport. No one's coming here having to buy the whole place. Uh, you, you don't go to an airport and say, well, I, I rented the whole airport for the day or for the week or for the month. You say, I, I need a gate and I need some uh, aviation fuel and, and I need someone to uh, uh, to push me off of the, off the gate, right? And so we lay out those requirements and our customers come in and basically time and material type of contract will pay for the time of our staff and then the use of the facilities that they that they need um, during their time here. Uh, and so that's different here for Alaska Aerospace and in the Kodiak launch site in that we are full service. We're, we're, we're not only have the, the pads to launch from and the integration facilities and the payload processing, clean rooms and command and control, but we have the staff to do it so we can go from mission planning and integration. And then we're doing range safety and instrumentation and weather support and all that. A lot of the other locations to launch from, federal ranges, right? You, you have, may have a commercial piece that is leasing a pad and, and managing that pad and supporting it, but then the range services are coming from the federal government, either NASA or, or Space now. When it comes down to, to, to the launch side of things, uh, since we're a multi-user, we have a reservation process. Put a few bucks down, uh, tell us the quarter mm -hmm. that you're looking to launch in, and we pencil it in. Uh, we know everyone's time slip around, but we're trying to get a sense of who wants to go where. Uh, and then as we get closer to that, we find customers will either move that around, and we don't penalize them for that. They tell us early enough. We say, mm -hmm. hey, uh, it doesn't look like I'll be ready in third quarter. Can I move the fourth quarter? Uh, and then as we get closer, then we you know, get it down to a, like, typically a two-week process, uh, and especially before the 30-day notification to FAA Coast Guard, that that's mm -hmm. really the hard set time when by our regulatory requirements, our license requirements as a spaceport, we have to let them know, here are the dates, and then those don't change. Uh, so everyone can, can plan for that. The last piece I would say is insurance, is coming to the range of general liability insurance, but also launch insurance. Um, so if there's a mishap with a vehicle and something needs to be repaired uh, and whatnot, then, then we know the launch vehicle operator has insurance to pay for that and, and we can be made whole as a spaceport. Wow. So that is very non-trivial to say the least. <laughs>
<laughs> it's not trivial, but it's pretty straightforward. I think it's pretty streamlined. Um, it tends mm. to be fairly rapid to go through. I, I we I would say with DARPA Launch Challenge, you know, we, we did have a heads up on the DARPA side. Um, Astra didn't know where they were going to go, um, but that was that just took a few months versus years. Um, and we could get a launch vehicle operator going, you know, in just a few months. If someone, especially if someone had their license in hand um, and, and needed to really add the launch site. That's probably the longest piece of it is, is the licensing side from the FAA right now. Then and a little bit of scheduling on our side to make sure we're not jammed up. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's uh, what I like about it. It's, it can it's starting to get more agile. So still mm -hmm. not trivial, right? It's not that you can just fly into an airport and, and pull up someplace. Uh, but we're, we're getting it. <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say it, it. It it sounds like from the commercial side that it's very useful for them to have AAC being you know. So experience in this. So, you know, like, like you kind of started off with, you know, they, they come to you and just say, Hey, what, what do we need? What do we, what, how do we get this to happen? You know, <laughs> and then you're like, okay, yeah, we got our, we got our system. So yeah, I think it's getting down to more of a routine. Uh, and everyone's got a little bit of different quirks, if you will, and maybe it's different propellant or different con ops, uh, but we can work through those pretty easily. Uh, the other piece that we're starting to see is international companies wanting to come launch in the U.S., not unlike uh, aircraft uh, being built overseas and say, look, there's a big market in the U.S. or we want to test in the U.S. because that's the gold standard for aviation, gold standard now for space transportation, and, and they're starting to come in. Uh, we signed two most recently, Agnacool of India and Taiwan Innovative Space, uh, Taiwan, Thai space. Um, so we're looking forward to them. And, and they have ITAR expert control steps that need to go through um, and that's another process that we initiate and get them set up uh, with the right experts to go through that process and, uh, but that's exciting to start to see really on a global stage all of this starting to come forward and, and moving from just one or two companies into a broader industry and, and I think that's what's really going to keep this moving forward uh, in, is that having lots of options we've seen some companies start that process and not make the journey uh, so we know not all the companies will make the journey but it's exciting to see this come forward we're starting to see orbital class test launches orbital class uh, operational launches come to be um, so the future is looking great I'm excited mm -hmm. so I had a question about sort of the certification process your your internal process for uh, making sure that a customer has checked all the boxes um, and, and this I think seems like very boring paperwork to a lot of people, but it's something that fascinates me. Um, do you have like, what, what is your internal communication system look like? Do you have um, a particular, uh, you know, folder assigned to every single um, person who reaches out to start um, a launch contract? How do you make sure that you have checked all the boxes um, to accept somebody as a, a launch customer? Yeah, so I think there's a blend of operations and a blend of business in, in answering that question. You know, certainly on the business side, we, we set up a, a user agreement with the, each company uh, that then encompasses the mission planning as well as uh, operations and tends to be start with test launches and then uh, operational launches thereafter. Uh, so yeah, everyone gets set up in that process and terms and conditions of the contract. That's where the insurance clauses come to be in terms of payment and all, all that kind of business uh, back office functions on that side. And then operationally, uh, it, it tends to be a, a team lift uh, going through different phases. So on business 
business development side, pursuing customers. And it, with only being four vertical launch sites in the U.S., it's pretty straightforward of where companies are going to. But um, sometimes people forget about Kodiak or, or don't know uh, or think about us in different ways. So we tend to also reach out to companies and, and say, hey, I see you moving up in your maturity of testing. Are you looking at launch sites and what can we offer? Uh, so it's a little give and take like any business, I think. Uh, but then we end up assigning a, a mission integrator uh, to that customer, start working the requirements and do that program introduction and understanding what needs to be uh, supported and what things that we need to think about of prepping for them. And that could take uh, a year. It, it really just paced by how fast the company wants to go by. Uh, it tends to, the discussions start pretty far out and you start moving forward. Uh, and then when you start getting closer to the launch, that's when the discussions between FAA, the space for, and the customer start to get more integrated together. So there's a number of products that the launch vehicle companies have to provide to the FAA, and we get copies of those via the ground safety plan, ground safety analysis, flight safety plan, flight safety analysis are, are, are four big products that have to be turned into the FA anyway. We get copies of them, we review them, make sure we understand what is needed and how the launch vehicle operator is working. And then our mission integrator tends to flip hats, uh, pivot in the seat to become the range control officer, RCO, and then will serve as the range's lead on console during the countdown. We'll develop a countdown checklist on the spaceport side, and then they'll get integrated with the launch vehicle operators checklist. And that's really the kind of last step is to ensure that our steps and their steps in the countdown are integrated and mutually supportive, that then contingencies and emergency procedures are well understood and practiced, and we'll, we'll do integrated tests together. The wet dress rehearsal is a great milestone to integrate the teams together. Um, you'll tend to have a pathfinder activity especially for new companies. They can uh, tend to bring a, a dummy rocket up or, or some sort of mock-up and go through the procedures. Also make sure that electrical and fiber and, and mechanical connections all, all match. And so that tends to be another milestone. So it, it's a fairly um, deliberate process uh, wrapped around really the licensing on both our side of the spaceport, as well as the customer's license with the FAA uh, in repeatable processes. So once you get past the first launch or so, then the next set of launches end up being uh, mm -hmm. much more shorter time frame. You should, you should know how each other is operating and you're just doing tweaks. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, once you've done that first launch, how do you make sure that you, you on an organizational level, remember what the previous operation looked like and and use that to inform your new decisions. Yeah, so, so that continuity of operations is is key. And, and sometimes it can be challenging with a small workforce. Uh, you see, on the business side, you want to keep the workforce lean. Uh, you don't want to have a lot of overhead of people sitting around um, unproductive. Uh, but on the flip side, if you have just one or two people who know how to do something, a certain function, then that's a big vulnerability. And especially with COVID, right? If you have someone sick, from COVID, uh, that could be a critical piece of knowledge that how do you backfill that? So uh, this kind of pandemic has really had us focus on right, how are we making sure that we're backing each other up? So a couple of pieces on there that we're doing. One is 
documenting, right? Checklists. Uh, we're, we're moving to digital checklists. So it's all online. Um, that gives us a lot of flexibility. We can take um, iPads out to uh, the remote areas of the spaceport, out to a pad or out to the instrumentation field and go through a checklist and electronically check everything off. And then someone like myself who's sitting in the launch operations control center can uh, have insight into what's going on. and doesn't, I don't have to have oversight, right? I don't need to call somebody and go, hey, Johnny, did you do this? And I could just see, yep, they all got checked off and it's done. So that's been uh, a move that we've been making over the past year, electronic checklists. Uh, backing each other up, having staff that are certified and trained in multiple seats on launch day uh, and activities uh, is very helpful to reconstitute uh, capability. If someone gets sick or is unable to support a launch, then we can move people around. That's what I like about having a more of an Alaska workforce because we can train people uh, in between launches at pretty low cost, uh, low impact to the, to the business and set aside some time for, for people to do that. So I think that's a, another a key element of ensuring that we share knowledge and move things forward. The Innovation Center is another way to bring in innovators, vendors, the university um, to share knowledge, improve upon our operations. Uh, and how we do business. And then lastly, we're starting a online training program with the University of Alaska for spaceport operations and management. So similar to an airport management certificate or degree program, this will be a spaceport oriented version of that. Uh, it'll be offered online. We're gonna start with an overview course that was in development right now, hopefully in spring of 2021, we'll get that launched. Uh, and then we plan to have several courses offered around different elements of the spaceport that someone could take, uh, get, a, get a professional certificate in spaceport management and operations, and then say, look, I want a job, <laughs> not only at Kodiak, mm -hmm. but at another spaceport. You complement that with some on-the-job training of flipping switches uh, and understanding how to actually communicate on the, on the radios and, and how that specific um, system works. And then you can get certified doing uh, launch operations. Boy, talk about value added to the to the taxpayer. That's that's really <laughs> cool. Yeah, we're really excited about you know, doing that type of education. I, you know, a lot of this has been you bootstrap it, right? I mean, it's a lot of knowledge of coming from other spaceports and, and a lot of government knowledge, right? That's where some of my background comes from and, and others in this industry are coming out of that side of the business. But then how do we propel this forward is to do things like education courses and you don't have to have a bachelor's degree or master's degree in this, a professional certificate to understand the knowledge base and then on the job training, I think it's going to complement well to the type of staff that really perform well at a, at a spaceport. So like going back to airports again, um, is is that how it's done? Because um, I'm kind of wondering now how that works or is it more like an on-site training thing? Because there are so many airports in the world, obviously, that you could that, like if you're starting a new one, you know, you could always just hire from some other place. But obviously, you can't do that with a or you most likely can't do that with a spaceport because there's like, you know, five in the whole country or whatever. So is that how it's actually done on like the air travel side of things or? Um, I'm, I'm just wondering about the comparison there. Yeah, in the airports, it's, it's a mix, right? You have, you have some people who have degrees in airport management or other technical degrees, uh, but a lot of the staff and a lot of the management don't aren't degree 
um, positions. Uh, and you'll, you see a lot of people moving up through the ranks of starting like as a baggage handler and then moving to airside operations and, and throughout their, their careers, then, then will end up in supervisory roles and management roles. And, and I think that industry, because it is big, right? There, there's lots of airports. You can start in a regional airport, or even smaller, uh, non-towered airport and move, move your way up through then to uh, an international hub. Uh, and I think there's lots of options. And as you mentioned, we don't have those options right now on the spaceport side. Uh, so we, we pull where we can and then creating these new learning programs, I think is going to be key. And once again, we don't need to start this from scratch. There's a lot of good lessons and ways of training airport managers and how do you do airport operations. Let's take the best from, from those decades of experience uh, and move them into, into the spaceport side and make sure that our spaceport operators know enough about rockets uh, that they can understand or relate to that mission, uh, even if they they never take a, a flight, uh, which for the foreseeable future probably will not happen, but some point in the future will. And then they, but they understand those interfaces and what's needed and why the mission does what it does and why it can only launch at certain times and kind of the physics behind it um, to be able to articulate. And we're seeing that already playing out here in Kodiak. We, we have a lot of local staff on Kodiak that are tremendous value to PSCA, the spaceport, to our customers. And they don't hold advanced degrees. They don't hold college degrees. Um, and they are who makes this all work. You know, I think a lot of us get uh, enamored with space travel and outer space. And that's really cool, right? And I can't wait to go to Mars and moon. And yeah, I hope that all happens in my lifetime. Um, but that's the, the, the glamour of it, if you will. The, the part that makes this all work is, is folks, men and women, rolling up their sleeves, uh, working hard and doing the logistics, doing the operations and maintenance, keeping antennas working, making sure that the pad is in uh, working order with, with three-phase power and fiber optics and running those wires and keeping the systems operating. That is roll up your sleeves, good hardworking Alaskans, good hardworking Americans, um, that, uh, you know, get your hands dirty type of work. And it's exciting. I love going down there and, and putting on a pair of Carhartts and, and working alongside those men and women. Because that's, that's, that's what space is, is all about. Yeah. I, I often say that, you know, space is best when it's boring and, you know, we, we kind of strive to get to the point where it's boring and not exciting anymore. But uh, I appreciate that perspective that even the, the, you know, quote unquote, boring parts of this are still exciting and, you know, have all of this inspirational uh, potential because it is very cool to, to be, you know, to be an electrician. And well, what do you do? I, uh, I work with uh, general contractors building uh, commercial buildings. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I, I build rocket launch pads. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Right. And, and the experience translates hundred percent, right? Uh, yeah, that that's the type of folks we need is carpenters and electricians and uh, people moving dirt around versus you know, the rocket science piece is, is not what we're doing at the spaceport. So Okay, so one of the last topics that we want to talk to you about is you, you have a, a clean room facility there. Um, could you tell us about what what capabilities you have and what people are utilizing that clean room for? Is it is it just uh, integrations or is there anything more? Uh, complex happening there. Sure. So our payload processing facility, uh, PPF, uh, has two clean rooms uh, integrated together. Uh, can go down to a uh, 
10K class, typically 100K class, clean room set, set up, uh, was built in the initial infrastructure in the 90s uh, to support the smaller payloads, but still fairly large payloads. I, I, small goes all the way up to 3,300 pounds to sun-synchronous orbit. Um, so it's still, you can get a sizable uh, payload from, from here. Uh, also can support loading of hydrazine, so hypergolic fuels, which can be toxic and you have a lot of safety set up for that as well. Uh, so the, the payload processing facility we have uh, has all that capability integrated in together. I would say it's the most underutilized building on, on our site right now. Uh, we, we haven't used it to support a payload since TaxSat 4 in 2011, uh, but with the more commercial launches and payloads, I expect we'll start seeing a little more use of it. Um, but we're also seeing kind of a shift from need to keep every satellite in a clean room, uh, clean room standards to them visually clean and just integrating some satellites right in the integration facility, uh, like in a tent in the back of the uh, of the building, um, which works out fine too for a number of satellites. So we keep this facility largely in a mothball status um, because keeping a clean room standards is expensive. We run through a lot of electricity, high energy of keeping the airflow and filters and everything. So when we're not using it, we keep it just visually clean. We'll use it uh, for other activities like integration of, of rockets or other uh, storage of electronics and, and other side projects, if, if you will, that need to be supported out of the spaceport. Uh, but I also think that with small satellites, CubeSats, we're going to see being able to leverage this facility in a, probably a different way where we can set up smaller clean rooms inside the bigger facility and keep the cost down and not having to bring the whole facility to clean room standard, but in smaller activities, be able to store satellites for responsive space launch. So if you get the call from a customer that says, I need to launch payload X to a certain orbit, then, then you've got those payloads sitting on a shelf in, in this facility, move them, integrate them onto to the rocket and get that launched in, in a short period of time. Uh, I see that's how a capability like this continues to move forward and just being a big facility for larger satellites. Two quick follow-ups. Um, how big are each of those clean rooms? And can you define uh, the classification, like what is a 100K class uh, clean room actually mean? In the payload processing facility, we have two rooms. Each are 40 foot by 60 foot and 66 foot tall uh, high bays. And so we can actually process two satellites simultaneously in there. So each bay has 2,400 square feet of floor space. I mentioned before that we can handle hypergolic fueling there. So all the uh, capabilities to do that, uh, as well as being blast proof. So we have a control room that's blast proof. So we can be fueling remotely in there. We can store uh, and monitor payloads. We've had payloads sit there for several months and remotely monitor their health there. So fully environmentally controlled uh, activities as well. Um, we have a 15 ton bridge crane um, as well. So we can then lift a, a fairly sizable payload uh, and then integrate it onto the kick stage or third stage um, in a vertical manner on that as well. So a lot of flexibility. That's why the buildings are pretty tall. They give us that, that type of uh, flexibility. So the clean rooms. So class 100 means that there's 100,000 particles per cubic meter. Then 10,000 class means there's 10,000 particles per cubic meter. Uh, like I mentioned, we can get down to 10,000 class, which is very clean. Uh, that's important for optics. Uh, if you had a satellite with optics on it, that, that would be important. Most satellites, you know, 100,000 class or class 100 is, is just fine. 
to, to launch. So exactly what does it take to maintain one of these clean rooms? Um, and exactly what does mothball status entail? So like, uh, you know, well, you can't put a clean room on mothballs, I guess, but <laughs> how does that work? Yeah, just fill it, fill it floor to ceiling with mothballs. You're good to go. But I think that would make it an unclean room or a mothballing room. Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing is when you're in a clean room status uh, and you need to keep it to that that level you're running a lot of airflow through expensive filters um to in swapping out those filters to, to keep that air clean right so when we're in a mothball status or not using it uh, we're, we're not doing that right we're, we're just using regular hvac systems for an office type of setting a visually clean type of type of setting um, and that the, the building uh, is unoccupied uh, most of the time so we're, we're keeping energy use down we're keeping the thermostat uh, pulled down and all these those things add up when you when you're paying the bills or running a, a big infrastructure like a spaceport um the utility bill and the let and the, the the heating bill can can add up especially in the winter even though it's not very cold it still gets cold at kodiak right so uh, that that's the key function for that so when we're looking to put a satellite that needs a, a cleanliness status uh, then we go through and it could be a couple week process of of doing a top to bottom cleaning, physically washing the walls, uh, cleaning uh, the dust out, um, and then starting to run those filters and getting a much higher flow of uh, air through the building to then get all the particles out and, and have a higher level of energy doing that. So we often um, talk to our guests about um, advice for um, young people planning their education and their careers. Um, and how they should think about their own life um, to make good decisions about, you know, their passions and, and their what, what they want to do for a career. Um, and it's it's kind of fun because today we got a, a really good uh, example of how higher education is not a mandatory requirement for somebody who wants to work in the space industry. Um, so I, I wanted to know if you could offer any wisdom, uh, particularly to um new students, uh, maybe kids um, getting ready to graduate out of high school, um, about how they should think about uh, their life, how they can decide where their passion lies and, and how they could build up some, some personal uh, knowledge about what kind of major certification or whatnot might be the, the best next step for them? Yeah, that's a really good um, question. I'm, and I'm glad you are you know, looking at how do, how do we keep on building up this industry and, and young people coming into this industry. And I think the best advice I would give is to find what best fits you. Uh, if, if academics is what best fits you and you thrive in, in getting degrees and, and, and that type of traditional learning, then go do that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and education is key. Now, education comes in lots of forms. If, if in the traditional academic sense you thrive, great, go do that uh, and learn that way. If you learn more on the job, and hands-on and in a trade, that's awesome. And we definitely need more of those types of folks as well. And so there's the key would be don't if if you learn more hands-on and in a trade and that's what resonates with you, go pursue that and do that the best you can. And don't feel you have to 
fit into an academic box. Uh, and I see that the spaceport thrives with people who have learned and hands-on and do trades in a very professional manner and learning all along the way and bringing a lot of knowledge and capabilities and thinking about things in, in new ways. There's, there's no handbook on how to run a spaceport. So even bringing on capabilities of how to run an airport, you got to be thinking and innovating and bringing that forward. The other thing I would offer is to do the job they currently have to the best of your ability and demonstrate to your supervisor and to leadership that you have a work ethic um, that is bar done, that you're innovative, that you're thinking beyond just, you think about how your job fits into the bigger piece, but you're doing your job and playing your part to the maximum degree. Because if you can be relied upon in, in what you're doing today, then you're gonna be asked to then move up to the next level and say, hey, uh, teach others how to do your job and, and sharing knowledge, I find is very powerful. People who hold on to knowledge uh, becomes very scary. Uh, from a senior executive position, because if something happens to that person, like coronavirus, then I have a vulnerability in my business and I need people, multiple people to know what's going on. And so if I have somebody who knows their job well and can teach others, golden, right? That that makes that person very, very valuable, sharing their knowledge. So share your knowledge with others, demonstrate leadership by being a, a peer mentor, and then you'll be asked to move into supervisory roles and take on broader responsibility. And I always find it challenging as um, a leader to stretch your staff enough so that you give them new opportunities without trying to break them. Uh, and I think the key to that is then coming around them and surrounding them with support and saying, hey, even if you try and it doesn't work out, that's okay because we're all in this together and we're all building this together. So I would find what best fits you in, in your learning style take out down that wholeheartedly uh, and learn that from the ground up um, stay engaged even in my role as CEO when we do a launch I go down to the launch site I'm sitting on console I'm observing what's going on I'm playing my piece I'm actually on the phone with the FAA um, because I, I can provide some value add I can understand what's going on and help then the staff find efficiencies and when someone comes to me and says hey Mark why don't we do something different uh, that's great to hear and then I have a, a basis to understand that too. So I think there's lots of great opportunities for young people to get into the space industry, to commercial space transportation, either on the rocket side or on the spaceport side or in light manufacturing and in other trades that, that surround this growing industry. So I very much encourage people to get, get into uh, this part of industry. And if they find out that, look, space wasn't necessarily all what they thought it was going to be, that's, that's fine. There, it could translate over into aviation. It can translate into um, certain other parts of transportation as well, I think, very easily. Mark, that's been great. This was a very interesting conversation. We covered quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, our penultimate question uh, is, where would you like to be found on the internet? So our website at akaerospace.com is a great place to find us. We have a contact form, which can be used for a variety of reasons. If you have a, a rocket you want to launch from Kodiak, you can contact us there. If you're looking for internships or a job, ping us there. If you just want to learn more about the space sports, great way to reach out to us as well. And then we have a traditional final question. I'm going to go ahead and ask it, and I rarely get a chance to ask it, so I'm kind of excited. So our, our final question is, we've finally gotten commercial space tourism up and running. Uh, let's say this is far enough out in the future that, um, that Kodiak is now flying occasional 
uh, crewed flights um, and you've been given a ticket uh, to go to space, let's say to a commercial space station in low Earth orbit, um, what's one object that you would bring with you to space? So I think I would have to bring my camera. So I've been kind of learning more about uh, photography and trying to take just going from the basic auto mode into now more of a manual mode or assisted manual mode. Uh, and I think it would just be tremendous to capture all those sites. I mean, to see the world from space, to see the world as just one globe of humanity that doesn't have any distinctions, right? That you can see us all then in this bigger context. I think that is just a tremendous experience and be able to bring that back in photos uh, to family and friends uh, and to be able to relive that. I, I think that is the one key piece for the future of space travel that emotionally is going to really change humanity. It's, it's for more people to experience our world from a different viewpoint, from, from one that isn't just your neighborhood or your block or your country or even a couple countries. Uh, it's seeing it in this bigger context. And so uh, the camera would be key on my list. Um, do you have any particular sites that you, I mean, that, that's a fantastic question. I'm going to ask uh, a very uh, <laughs> narrow, pragmatic question, but do you have any any particular sites in mind that you would like to get a chance to to photograph from orbit? Is there anything in particular that's on your mind? So I think photographing the aurora, the northern lights from space oh, would be awesome. Yeah, you know, being yeah. here in Alaska, we mm. get to see them from the ground pretty often. Um, and so that's that's great. It, actually, one of our upcoming customers out of Kodiak is the Space Perspective, which is going to be a crude module uh, that goes to the edge of space, hundred thousand feet under a balloon, uh, hmm. and seeing the aurora from from that is going to be awesome. But then to go even higher and be orbiting the Earth and, and seeing the aurora from space, I think is, it's going to, would be great. All right. Well, Mark, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to tell us uh, about a, about a, a, a space fire. We haven't talked to anybody from the range side of things yet. So this was, this was really eye opening and interesting. Great. Thank you. I very much appreciate having the opportunity and talking about what we have here in Alaska. We like to say from the last frontier to the final frontier. I think there's a lot to be said about that. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. And uh, we, we look forward to uh, seeing where the industry goes, playing our role in advancing the future. This week in spaceflight history, we got a bunch of winners. So this was uh, either a very well-known uh, event. Yeah. I, I guess I really was a little too on the nose <laughs> with the clue, but... Perhaps. Yeah, good job, right? Our winners are uh, Tim McGroff, Cy Kyle, John Scott, Jason Friesen, the Greek Kyle Foster, Christian Lowe, the Vetamark Space Agency, Ben Haller, Coastal Gallery, Deskin Miller, and Colin. Five uh, breaths. Yeah, right? <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to do it in one breath and just try to get through it, but no, it took five breaths to bring all those folks. <laughs> I think that's the biggest yet. Good job. Yeah, that was, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the clue was, it was a lovely trip, but we were stuck indoors the whole time. That was the 11th of November, 1982. It was STS-5 the first operational shuttle mission, and the first to deploy satellites. So this is really early days of shuttle. Um, you know, prior to this, it was, you know, only crews of two. 
You know, they still had the ejection seats uh, in there to kind of go and escape. So they were still wearing pressurized suits during launch and reentry and landing. And so this was the first, uh, you know, proper operational one. And just like those early days, um, it was tough to find, well, I guess it wasn't tough to find veterans, but you need to draw them from, you know, Apollo, really. And so you had like Ken Mattingly, you know, and John Young, and you had these, you know, Apollo astronauts, but the the rookies were still from those Apollo era recruiting uh, classes that were kind of wondering, like, you know, am I ever going to actually fly on anything? Because, you know, after Apollo dried up, it wasn't terribly clear. So this uh, crew of four, uh, you know, was uh, Vance Brand was the commander. So Vance Brand, right, it was uh, Apollo Soyuz test project uh, veteran. And uh, everybody else was a rookie. Uh, Bob Overmeyer was the pilot, although the pilots typically were rookies uh, more often than not. Um, and Joe Allen and Bill Lenore were the two uh, mission specialists. And so, uh, you know, like I alluded to before, this was the first uh, in a number of different ways, the first crew of four, the first one to not wear pressurized suits. They just wore, you know, those uh, blue uh, flight suits uh, on takeoff or on launch. Even though you can fit four people in, uh, in the the flight deck, uh, they still stuck somebody in the mid deck, I guess, to keep a, get a little more space up there. And so the the mission specialists took turns uh, staring at a bunch of uh, uh, racks instead of um, actually getting to see <laughs> out the window. <laughs> so actually, I got a quick question. So I thought that on shuttle launches, they always wore their launch suits, like you know, pressurized suits. Isn't that? I mean, I've always seen that. I've never seen otherwise. Well, so if you look at the pictures, right, the 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 first. Uh, four uh, shuttle missions. They had the really they they're orange, but they're not the pumpkin suits, right? They were different. I guess mm -hmm. a paler kind of orange. Those were fully pressurized, and those were. I mean, with with two people, you had the the pilot and the commander, and you had the ejection seats, you know, and they basically panels would pop off the top, and they could escape that way. But they basically stopped doing that for most of the shuttle missions until uh, Challenger, I think, caused them to go and put on pressurized suits okay. again. I and see. so there was that gap of, yeah, so basically for the, what, uh, four years or so, they, yeah. they didn't wear pressurized suits, honestly. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, they, they there are actually three different suits that were worn, I believe. Um, can't remember what the first one was called, but then there's the last, the launch entry suit, and then the, the famous pumpkin suit um, that came in uh, after. Yeah, got, what's the acronym? ACES, Advanced Crew ACES. Escape Suit. Yeah. That's a big one. And I, I don't remember. I'm Googling real quick, trying to figure out what the first one was. It was called the Shuttle Ejection Escape Suit, which mercifully they didn't use the acronym CEASE. <laughs> yeah. So so we kind of go gold, uh, orange, puffy orange. That gold is very much a uh, 1970s color. Yeah. For real. <laughs> For real. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, let's let's build a suit out of Kapton. That's a bad idea. Okay, well, let's make a real <laughs> suit, but make it look like it's made out of Kapton. So, uh, as you know, the first operational mission, uh, this was, you know, they, they did some real work, you know, so to speak. And uh, in particular, the goal, uh, the main goal was to deploy two satellites. And so this was a uh, SBS-3, which is... Um, what's that? Uh, space business systems or satellite business systems... Um, satellite business systems. So uh, it was one of theirs, uh, uh, along with uh, Annex uh, C3, which is a, uh, a Canadian um, uh, satellite. And they're both uh, geosynchronous uh, telecom satellites. But they're really cool. Um, I, I really got interested in these uh, spacecraft buses uh, a 
couple months ago, uh, the it's called the Boeing 376, or at that time it was the HS 376, and they look like if you watch a lot of these were deployed from early shuttle missions. So if you see a lot of you know satellites getting deployed by shuttle, a lot of times you're going to see this you know uh, cylinder just totally covered in solar panels. And um, that's what these were. And it was actually kind of two cylinders. There was an outer one and then a slightly inner one, uh, kind of like those uh, kind of collapsible, collapsible uh, plastic swords. You can kind of flick your wrist and make mm -hmm. it kind of come out. Uh, so these two concentric ones, um, basically, when it would get to its final orbit, then it would, you know, slide out and then become a much bigger, you know, satellite. But you could still have it more uh, in its compact mode for the launch and deployment. So they're, you know, sitting in their little, you know, shuttle cradle, uh, which looks like a little Pac-Man uh, yep. <laughs> looking up, right, with the little uh, sun shield. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're sitting in the Pac-Man, they get a little uh, spin from a turntable, and uh, they're, they're spring-loaded in there and held in place by a, a Marmon clamp. And so once uh, some explosive bolts go and blow that after it starts spinning, then it kind of moves up and away. And so there's 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 nice footage uh, of some of these. And so it's really cool to check out. At that point, they are, they're moving away. They're drifting fairly slowly. So the orbiter actively goes and moves till it's like, you know, uh, tens of kilometers distant before, you know, continues with, you know, what else it wants to do. And so, um, right. Oh, and, and um, this is, you know, if you look up these images or you can uh, uh, see in our Discord, uh, we've got, you know, it has a little uh, uh, PAM uh, motor. Uh, that basically takes it to, uh, you know, it's a little solid rocket uh, motor, which is those, uh, it's it's a star engine like we had talked about, one of those star engines. And that takes it to, you know, it's uh, transfer orbit, highly eccentric transfer orbit, and then that's jettison. And then there's another solid kick motor on the satellite itself that, you know, circularizes it and puts it in the geo. So both of them deployed, great. So uh, Lenore and Alan were also uh, scheduled as part of the mission to do a three and a half hour EVA because they had the um, extravehicular mobility units or EMU uh, suits and uh, they hadn't been used yet. Right. And uh, there were also some prototype tools. And so this would have been the first American, uh, you know, spacewalk since uh, 1974. So, you know, that's a good uh, almost 10 years. So wow. big, big little gap there. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, in STS-4, I wasn't able to get too much back, uh, like a primary source on this, but it, it seems, uh, at least it's been claimed on Wikipedia, <laughs> that uh, Mattingly and Hartsfield on um, uh, STS-4 uh, donned just the... Uh, the suits while they were uh, in the airlock to test it out, but they didn't actually, you know, go on any activity. So, <laughs> oh, and I, and what I really found fascinating about this mission was that this at this point the the airlock was inside the shuttle. Like, I mean, it was in the mid deck. Mm. We'll have uh, these uh, photos in the uh, of you know the uh, internal uh, mode of the airlock, uh, which which evidently was on. Um, you know, all, all of the sh all of the shuttles, you know, all the orbiters out of the factory had the internal airlock model. And so it wasn't until, you know, quite later uh, that uh, a, a much later higher number STS uh, that they actually went with the um, external airlock to free up some space. So anyway, right. So they're, they're now they're going to do a proper uh, EVA, though. Um, so the, the, the plan was that Lenore would go out first and basically use the slide wire on the one side of the payload bay and just work their way to the back presumably until Pac-Man stopped them. 
And then uh, after Lenore reached the end, then Alan would come out and use the slide wire on the other side and they'd both get to the other end there. And just really to see, you know, how does it work? How does it feel? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, <laughs> what kind of problems there? Measurements would be taken on the way, of course, uh, as well. But um, it got delayed. The first kind of hiccup uh, was when uh, Lenore got motion sickness. Uh, so that pushed it back a day. But then they were ready to go, so they put on their suits, they went into the airlock uh, to do some pre-breathing. Um, but Alan's oxygen flow fan uh, developed some problems. Um, I, there's a, a newspaper article that talks about, you know, uh, how it made a motorboating sound that was clearly heard by mission control. And after four to five minutes, it just kind of got worse and, you know, and sort of deteriorated until finally it was just flat out dead at that point. And so Alan's kind of like, well, I guess I'm not going anywhere. Uh, but Lenore's like, fine, that's okay. I'm just going to do a quick solo. Don't mind me. <laughs> and so Mission <laughs> Control says, well, okay, just crack the hatch open. Uh, don't actually go outside, but, you know, let's, uh, let's at least start there. And then, uh, but before they could, you know, do that, Lenore's uh, regulator was keeping his uh, suit's pressure too low. Um, now, I also want to say, though, that these newspaper articles were, you know, my source for, uh, you know, some of these quotes. But unfortunately, the newspaper article also had about Lenore's suit that without pressurization, the human body would explode in airlessness. <laughs> which, <laughs> which makes me a little worried about my sources because that does not happen. Uh, your, your body, your skin is much more strong enough to keep you in there <laughs> yeah but um hey you know maybe it made for a good uh news article and so um it, it turned out that i mean ultimately though that just uh you know they had to cancel it and this was the first eva that was canceled due to suit problems specifically and um and so that's the you know it was a lovely ride they they made it to space you know they got to you know fly on a shuttle but unfortunately they had to stay inside the whole time but, you know, it was good, though, because this was actually scheduled pretty early. Like, the a lot of the, the, the mission managers thought that they were kind of, you know, almost overdoing it with how, you know, early they had scheduled these tests. And so they still had ample opportunities until there were, you know, the practical missions that called for a uh, an EVA to do something practical as opposed to just, you know, testing things. You know. As a result, uh, the very next mission, because, right, this was the glory days when STS uh, numbers actually went in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, and so on. Um, <laughs> unlike, you know, most of the time in the program where they jump around like crazy mm -hmm. because of mm -hmm. scheduling. But anyway, so the next mission, STS-6, uh, uh, as Ben likes to say, was handed the first uh, shuttle EVA Boy Scout patch. Um, mm -hmm. And so this was Challenger's uh, maiden flight. And uh, the EVA was um, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Story Musgrave, and... Uh, mm -hmm. Don Peterson, I think, was the other person. Sorry to kind of be overshadowed, but story is very yeah. impressive. That's what that's what happened. You that's what happens when you fly with them. I mean, it's just kind of right. You accept your fate and move on. There's nothing you can do yep. about it. He's eccentric. <laughs> yeah, and so right, uh, and this was pretty wild. Uh, uh, an EVA wasn't done out of Columbia until STS-87 in November of 1997. So that's 15 years later until Columbia did an EVA. Um, just, I guess, you know, the type of missions it was doing. And so um, otherwise, things went great. Um, I just wanted to put here just for David that there were there was a getaway special on board, <laughs> oh, a little, yep, there a little gas can. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, some student experiments. Uh, it looked like there was an external uh, experiment tied to um, testing different, like, I don't know much about it. They actually seem like they put it on the uh, 
tile side of the, uh, you know, where the thermal protection system was. And so I don't know if it was just a different type of tiles that they were testing on a subset of the orbiter, because that seems like something you don't want to screw around with. So, uh, but I didn't do much digging there, but uh, yeah, feel free to go, ch go down a Google uh, bunny hole if you want and check out STS-5's experiments, because uh, that seemed like it was an interesting thing, but uh, it was actually on the underside of, of the orbiter. I don't, did you say the full name, the tile gap heating effects experiment, TG? I did not. I did not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll have an extra link in the show notes. Um, one of the, if you're ever curious about a mission, honestly, the best thing you can do is just Google the mission name and press kit. Cause like these press kits have to be like, uh, um, archived somewhere. Uh, not a lot of them are still available from NASA directly, but you can find them on different websites. Um, and the, the press kit I'll, I'll put in here has got a little more information if you're interested. So, yeah, so it was a five day mission. Uh, they landed at Edwards. Uh, everything went smoothly and, uh, lovely trip, but fortunately they had to stay inside. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. Now, next week, uh, which is the 17th through the 23rd of November, uh, David, do you have a clue for next week? Sure do. Next week's clue is hypercarbon carbon plasma. And that's next week in 2000. Yeah. 20 years ago, hypercarbon carbon plasma, uh, mm. very dry, if you will, clue. It's not often that we get actual, uh, 20, you know, like a multiple of 10 anniversary events. So this one's kind of cool. Mm. Yep. So if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So upcoming spaceflight events. We've got a couple here. Let's run down that list. And what's the first one, Ben? Yeah. So this is an Atlas V flying Enroll 101. This is kind of fun. Originally, the mission was going to be flying on a 551 configured Atlas V, uh, but they actually have now downgraded it to a 531. Uh, so that's, uh, dropping two solid rocket boosters. Um, I, I probably want to go figure out why they originally yeah. over, over planned for this. I wonder if the payload changed or if the orbit changed. In any event, this is flying at 2222 GMT. That's fantastic. 2222 GMT on <laughs> November 11th. Uh, that's 522, uh, PM. Eastern time. Following that, we have on November 14th slash 15th, depending on your time zone, we have a Falcon 9 and that's launching Crew 1. Uh, so that's going to be exciting. I'm going to definitely watch that one. Um, mm -hmm. So, yep, that's uh, taking up uh, NASA astronauts Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, and Shannon Walker, and Japanese astronaut Soichi Noguchi. So that's, yeah, four people. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, this is really exciting. Um, it's going to be launching at uh, 049 UTC, which is 749 p.m. on the East Coast. So that's actually, you know, a perfect time. Um, and that's launching from 39A at the Cape. So definitely watch that one. And then uh, the rendezvous and docking of, uh, of resilience is going to be a little harder to watch for folks uh, in the U.S., but it'll be fantastic for people on the other side of the world. Um, that's happening uh, shortly thereafter at 4.20 a.m. Eastern Time uh, Sunday morning. So the, the rendezvous uh, coverage on NASA TV will happen at 4.20 a.m. Um, and then the welcoming ceremony, the, the docking will happen somewhere in there. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what time the docking is planned for, but the rendezvous and docking will uh, coverage will start at 4.20 a.m. And then uh, by 7 a.m. they'll begin the coverage um, for the welcome ceremony. And then finally, we have an electron, uh, you know, it's return to center mission that you heard at you know, the top of the hour. And so... <laughs> 
So this is on the 14th or 15th, depending on where you live. And uh, just to remind you, right, this is going to be 30 small satellites and payloads uh, over a wide range of customers, as well as, of course, Gabe Newell's uh, Noam Chomsky that we love talking about. <laughs> and will also be Rocket Lab's first uh, attempt to recover uh, the first stage using parachutes. Um, still going to splash down, but, you know, it's going to have a little softer splash. And so, mm -hmm. uh, again, this is uh, either the 15th or 16th, depending on where you live, with the launch uh, window from 0144 to 0434 UTC on the 16th, or for people in the U.S., that's 844 to 1134 p.m. Eastern uh, on the 15th. And so this will be, you know, uh, another launch from uh, Launch Complex 1 uh, in New Zealand. Great. And those are your upcoming space flight events. And with that, time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Pod podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com and please if you're interested join us for some more among us gaming on saturday at 2 p.m pacific 5 p.m eastern um, we had a great group and thank you so much to everyone who came uh last saturday and um it's a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it, and I know we definitely had a good time. It's it's sort of a weird, high-stress, low-stakes kind of environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of shouting, but good shouting. <laughs> All right, well, that is it, and so we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.